Welcome to the Together PDX podcast. You're listening to our Gospel Gathering series, where we will be replaying valuable content from past events where local Portland leaders gathered to hear from authors, theologians, and scholars. We'd like to note that the views shared by our guests don't necessarily reflect those of the entire Together PDX team. We pray today's content enriches your day and spirit. Hey, everyone. I'm Elise Scalis, and I have a great episode for you today. You know, I love the way our current gospel gatherings allow us to be together in person, but a huge plus of these older COVID-era Zoom gospel gatherings is we got to hear from legends like N.T. Wright, not just once, but a few times. You may have already listened to episodes 10, 11, 14, and 15 with Dr. Wright, but today I'm bringing yet another great talk from him, this time on the subject of his book, Broken Signposts. In this talk, Dr. Wright explores some of the longings of the human heart, justice, love, spirituality, and more, and how the world may give us only broken glimpses of these, but God, through Jesus, fulfills them perfectly. We're going to hear from Dr. Wright on these subjects, and there will be a bit of Q&A from some local Portland pastors. Without further ado, this is part one of Dr. N.T. Wright's 2020 talk, Broken Signposts. I've been asked this evening to talk about this book, Broken Signposts. Uh, My publishers gave it the subtitle, How Christianity Makes Sense of the World, which was kind of an interesting thing, like often happens with newspaper headlines. Uh, The author didn't actually choose that subtitle, but I, I kind of like it because you might imagine it would be how Christianity makes sense in the world, but I, th- this book does go one step further from that, further than that, and try to address the question of how Christianity makes sense of this world, because um, the world is a puzzling place. And the more we get to know the world with modern science and technology and, and uh, goodness knows what, space technology and surveillance and so on, the more puzzling it becomes. We know some things, but that merely reveals to us the extent of our continuing ignorance. And if anyone thinks that that's not so and that actually uh, modern science has got it all sussed and we just have to fill in a few footnotes and that would be all right. Well, I suspect none of you think that, but then that that would raise all sorts of other questions. But the the backstory of this book, um, some of you will be aware of. Um, that I wrote a book called Simply Christian 15 years ago. And uh, that took me some while to get into because the challenge that the publishers had set me was to do a sort of uh, uh, 21st century equivalent of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, which has been, of course, a famous book doing all kinds of of things and helping people in a skeptical age to see why actually the option of Christian faith might be a good thing. Lewis began that book by the puzzle of justice. And I decided I would begin Simply Christian with the puzzle of justice. And I begin this book with that as well. But in Simply Christian, I have four opening chapters, which I called Echoes of a Voice. And what I mean by that is this. If I walk out on the street outside my house here, I now live in central Oxford, rather to my surprise. And if I hear somebody calling my name, I look up and down the street to see who it is. But if I can't see anybody, wait a minute, was somebody really calling me? Should I go and investigate what's going on here? And it's that sort of puzzlement that we have when we hear or think about or are aware of the four subjects I then identified as justice, 
spirituality, relationships, and beauty. That is to say, when we think about fairness and justice and getting things straight and putting things right, we all know in our bones, as we say, that that matters. And uh, when we think about spirituality, after the decades of kind of barren secularism where people said, oh, there's no such thing as spirituality, that's just fairyland, that's just fantasy. Actually, most people throughout the world, throughout history, and most people in our own day know that there is more to human life than simply what you can put, as I've often said, into a test tube or into a bank balance. In other words, there is something going on which we feel like the echo of a voice calling us. And it's tempting because of the busyness and the aridity of much modern life to dismiss that and just say, oh, no, that's that's just wishful thinking. Just get on and do your job and pay your bills. And that's that's quite enough. But most of us know there's something more than that. And then there are relationships. And I use that word relationships rather than love, because love is such a slippery word. I'll come back to that. But with relationships, virtually all human beings know that relationships with other people, particularly, but also with the environment around us or with animals, whatever, that relationships matter and the ones closest to us matter enormously. They make us who we are. And yet we know that they all fail in one way or another. And then the fourth one that I had was beauty, where beauty is clearly really important. And all human societies from early cave paintings right through to postmodern music have said that there's something about beauty which leads us beyond ourselves. But beauty again lets us down. The sunset fades into darkness and so on. So in Simply Christian, I ran those four as a kind of a thought experiment to set up a question. And for me, this was a sort of apologetics, but it wasn't like uh, the normal, rather rationalist apologetics, where you start with um, fixed points about the world, fixed evidences, and simply build up from there and end up saying, therefore, God exists, or therefore, Christianity is true, or whatever. I wanted to come at it in a rather different way. And this present book, Broken Signposts, does the same thing, builds off another one, which I'll come back to in, an, in just in a moment. I keep on promising what I'm going to do in a moment. I have to remember, uh, check my notes to, to make sure I've got that right. So what I then did in Simply Christian, uh, and I, I'm explaining this so that you see the progress of my thought, how I got to the strange position I've landed up now, was to say we need to keep those questions somewhere where we can see them and they can see us and they go on teasing us. And then let's just take a deep breath and tell the story which the Bible tells. Now, there are many other stories you could tell. You could go to other so-called religious traditions or philosophical traditions. And yeah, that'd be fun too, and see how they get on with talking about justice and spirituality and relationships and beauty. That would be interesting. But what I wanted to do was to say, here is the Christian story, the story which begins with this strange account of creation, and then the call of a people who are called Abraham's family or Israel, and then out beyond that, what happens to these people and how that all seems to be itself a bit of a broken signpost because the people of God go into exile. And even though they come back, 
it's all a bit strange and doesn't seem quite to have worked. And then the story of Jesus bursts out in the New Testament and says, actually, this is what it all means. And gradually we realize that those echoes of the voice which we heard before were echoes of this story or can be seen as such. And then they mean that the people who find themselves called to follow Jesus are called to be people who themselves speak that voice or call that name down the street so that other people can hear it. So that was what I did in Simply Christian. Then when I was doing my Gifford lectures two and a half years ago, uh, History and Eschatology, um, sharing a title with Rudolf Bultmann, who was the last New Testament scholar before me to do the Gifford lectures, which I find considerably amusing since a lot of this book is critique of Bultmann. I decided that at one point in this book, which is an argument about natural theology and about the place of Jesus in natural theology, which is not how that's normally been done. But I wanted to run a similar argument to what I'd run in Simply Christian, which is not, as I say, a traditional natural theology or a traditional apologetic, but it was a way of going beyond what I did in Simply Christian to say, when we are faced with questions like this bubbling up within human society, then it's a question whether human society is just all a fiction, whether we're just a mass of floating signifiers, as in postmodernity, or whether life is just a sick joke, as in Jean-Paul Sartre, or whatever. Were these really echoes of a voice, or were they only imaginative echoes from latent atavistic impulses within our own consciousness, etc.? And so in chapter seven of History and Eschatology, I run those four that I had before, but I add three more. So we've got justice, spirituality, relationships, beauty, and then I added freedom, truth, and power. And in each case, rather briefly in history and eschatology, I showed that all seven of them have the same sort of shape. That is, we all know they're important, but we all mess them up. And that's the problem. But then, in history and eschatology, I argue that the story of the death of Jesus is the story which makes sense because there we see justice denied, beauty trampled upon, freedom squashed, power abused, and so on with all seven. And that actually the cross is a way of God saying, not that these were signposts which would point happily up to some heavenly truth, but that actually here is a story which tells how God has come down to the places where the broken signposts have let us down, because that's where we all are, with justice denied, freedom trampled on, power abused, truth um, turning into fake news, etc. The cross is the story of how God has come down to meet us there. So my argument there, which is what then Broken Signposts picks up from, is that these signposts, these, these uh, interesting signals, which all human beings pretty much are aware of, the fact that they let us down in the way they do mean that we can't straightforwardly argue an apologetic from them up to God, but that when we see the gospel story of the death of Jesus and then of his resurrection, 
we look back and we say they were true signposts. In other words, these were the right questions to be asking, even though by themselves they weren't able to give you the right answer. Rather like a Christian reading of the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures would be to look back at that whole narrative from Genesis to Chronicles in the Hebrew Bible or Genesis to Malachi in our English Bibles and to say, well, as it stood, that whole story is somewhat puzzling. I mean, it's noticeable that in the great Jewish tradition, they can't just leave it at that. You have to have the rabbis to interpret and say, now we are moving forward in this way. But the Christian story from the beginning looks at that story and says, those were the right questions to be asking. What does it mean to be the family of Abraham? What does it mean to be the people of the creator God? Here is the story which gives you the answers. So finally, I'm coming to it in Broken Signposts itself. What I decided to do here was a different sort of thought experiment. I worried whether it was actually going to work or not, but I wrote it and I sent it to my publishers and bless him, my publisher, Mickey Morden at HarperCollins, he said, actually, this does work and let's let's do it. And that's been exciting because I thought, well, it's one thing to set up these seven signposts and to show this business about how they don't work, etc. But then maybe how the gospel does. But maybe what we need to do is to dig into a well-known scriptural text and show how that actually makes sense of them all. And because I haven't written very much about the Gospel of John in the past, I've done a bit, I've tended to concentrate on the synoptic Gospels and on Paul in particular, as most of you probably know. I thought, let's take John because I love John. You know, I was once asked in a job interview a long time ago, um, well, you've written about the Gospels, you've written about Paul, what about John? And I rashly said, and I think she has forgiven me for this, that I feel about John like I feel about my wife. I love her very much, but I don't claim to understand her. And of course, that got me a laugh in the interview, but actually it didn't get me the job. And maybe there was a lesson there, too. But so with John, what I decided to do was to say, OK, take justice. Here is the problem of justice. We all know it matters, but it, it, it fails. We all get it wrong. What does John say about justice? Here is love. And I call it love in this book rather than relationships. Let's talk about love. And then what does John say about love? Well, God so loved the world, of course, but there's a lot more than that as well. And then spirituality and then the others until freedom, truth and power. Because one of the things that's fascinated me about John for a long time is the way in which when Jesus confronts Pontius Pilate in chapters 18 and 19 of John's gospel, which is almost a kind of a, a charter for a Christian political theology, what they are arguing about is kingdom and truth and power. So truth and power, and the question of what God's kingdom has to do with them, or Caesar's kingdom for that matter, this actually is woven into it. So what I did in this book was to take each of those seven topics and having set out the problem, then to run a reading of John's gospel in relation to that theme. And also, of course, as an introduction to John, because though many Christians, and certainly I'm sure all you pastors, know John's gospel pretty well, I suspect that by running these themes through John, there might be some fresh insights and new ways into old texts. And we'll get back to that in the second half. So that's how the book works. And I inter interposed between the chapters, little interludes, two or three or four pages on how to read John. 
And again, I'll say more about that in the second half now. But in the time that remains to me now, before we go into our first Q&A, let me just say a little bit more about the different seven topics. And I start with justice. And again, I'm telling tales out of school, but my wife won't mind me telling this one, that I was very struck by the fact we were having dinner with some old friends and the, the, the husband was like me, a New Testament scholar. And we'd been looking forward to having a good natter about different aspects of New Testament scholarship, etc. But the seating plan put him next, not to me, but to my wife. And bless him, he's a good conversationalist. And he asked my wife what she'd been reading. And as you might suspect from a pastor's wife, a bishop's wife, she mostly reads murder mysteries. And I hope that just occasions a little ripple of laughter among those of you who are listening. Something about being married to a pastor, being married to a bishop makes and Maggie isn't the only one by any means in this bracket, as I know from many conversations. Um, and it makes them long to have a story where everything's gone wrong. But in a murder mystery, eventually it all gets sorted out. That's what you long for. And my friend, bless him as well as being a good New Testament scholar, he reads murder mysteries as well. So they were talking 19 to the dozen at the far end of the table about murder mysteries and what it is that they like and which authors they were reading. And that got me thinking about this passion for justice. I don't myself much like murder mysteries because I don't like all the violence and the blood and all that. I just it just doesn't do it for me. Um, but I do know that one of the reasons those books sell so well is that passion for justice. We read the newspapers and we see wicked people getting away with it. or We see wicked countries doing things that the rest of us seem powerless to stop. Or we see gross injustice on a local or national or an international level. And yet anyone, if you ask them, do you believe in justice? Pretty much anyone except the most hardened criminal will say, yes, of course, justice matters. That's what we have to do. And then we discover that this person is, in fact, fiddling their tax return and that person has cheated in some business deal or this country has flagrantly invaded another country, even though that is totally against international law and so on. In other words, we all know that justice matters, but we all mess it up. And yet we all retain this longing for justice, which is what makes some people read murder mysteries and other people say, I have to get voted onto the local council and then I will help sort it out. And at least half the people who've gone into local or national politics do so with that good motivation. What happens to them thereafter? Well, that's another story, part of the problem, perhaps. So then having set up the problem, I then do a reading of John in relation to it, which we'll come back to. But then, of course, love. We all know that relationships matter, as I said. And yet we all know whether it's school time friends where, you know, those of us who've had children know perfectly well that there is going to come a time when this daughter or that son is going to come home in tears because my best friend isn't friends with me anymore. Oh, dear, what's gone wrong? How can we help? Maybe a phone call to the parents or whatever it is. We all know that friendships and love and companionship matter, but we can foul it up pretty badly, even when we're not really trying to. Sometimes we get mad and we do try to. But then particularly, of course, within marriage and families, sometimes things can go horribly wrong and often do. And yet the call of love 
is so often seen, and I would say quite rightly, as something to do with the call of God. First John says, those who live in love live in God and God lives in them. And some theologians have perhaps riskily explored the fact that within the Trinity, there is this sense of relationship, the inner relationship of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And that uh, theologians have explored the way in which we are invited to join that glorious dance, the perichoresis of the Trinity. And yet there, too, we all mess it up which is my, why in my tradition, as part of morning prayer and evening prayer, we have the confession of sins. And as why, obviously, within the Lord's Prayer, every day, every time we say it, we say, forgive us our trespasses. And the trespass isn't just that we've broken some stupid law. It's that we want to be in relationship with our Heavenly Father, and we've let him down again. And we come back again, like the prodigal son crawling back, with the smell of the pigsty still on him. And we say, Father, I'm sorry, I've done it again. And we wait for the Father to come and say, bring the best robe and the ring and all the rest of it. And we we know that relationships matter at every level and we still mess them up. And then we go to John's gospel. And of course, that's where it is. And particularly poignantly at the end with Peter having denied Jesus, then astonishingly being reconciled. We'll come back to that. Spirituality. Again, as I said, I think most people in most cultures to this day know that there is a dimension of human life which for which we broadly use the word spirituality. When I was younger, that wasn't a word, wasn't a thing. People didn't talk about it. They maybe talked about religion or saying your prayers, but I vividly remember the first time I heard a friend talk about different pathways of Christian spirituality or something like that. And I knew when I heard that, this is an interesting way of talking about something that clearly matters because I had been somebody who was nurtured in a a prayerful home and church from my early days. And I'd sort of taken it for granted. But it's only when you look with other people's eyes from outside that, yes, there is something there. And this word spirituality names it a level of human existence and experience that is more than just what you can touch and see and more even than the best human relationships. There is something going on, something which has a sort of hidden music about it, because the beauty of music would be part of this, but goes beyond that again. And yet, and yet, there is this thing called the dark night of the soul, which comes upon some Christians, some people for no apparent reason. And sometimes people say, oh, it's because you've turned away from God that he's turned away from you. But as I argued in my other recent book on the pandemic, that's all very well. That may be true sometimes that things go dark and blank because we have sinned and turned away from God. But if you read the Psalms and if you read the book of Job, you'll find that very often in Scripture, it isn't like that at all. Something else is going on. And that easy relationship, which we sometimes have with the one we call Abba, Father, simply goes cold. And then when we read John's gospel, we see similar things at certain points happening there. And then beauty. And I'm just going to read you because I don't think I can better it off the top of my head. The beginning of the chapter on beauty, because I was writing this book in February last year. So like, I suppose, 18, 19 months ago. And I was alone in the house because my wife was visiting relatives elsewhere. 
And I was getting up early in the morning and working on this after I'd said my prayers. And at one point, I thought I need to go out and inhale the morning air. And it was still dark. It was early morning in February. It was quite cold. And this is what I saw. The moon has only a few days left in its cycle, rising now in the southeast about two hours before dawn. I stood outside this morning in the frosty air under a totally clear sky, marveling one more time at the infinite number of twinkling lights above me, small messages sent out so long ago that it makes the events in John's gospel seem like yesterday. There was the moon, low and dramatic in its late crescent. To its left was the planet Venus, bright as the light of a landing plane. There to its right was Jupiter, not so bright, but with its own glowing beauty. I had to come indoors, but I returned several more times, and as the sun came up, three or four flocks of geese rose with it, honking and flapping on their morning journey, flying right past the bright crescent and the still visible planets. And then in the next paragraph, I say, it is cloudy now. The geese have gone, and so has the glory of the night. I am enriched and also saddened. And that's the point about beauty, isn't it? The music stops. We have a memory of it, but we can't hear that great final resolution every time. We can't sense that vibrancy. The beauty becomes a memory and it has changed us, but we want it again. C.S. Lewis in his book, Surprised by Joy, talks about that as the, the stab of joy. And we, we, we want it again, but what we really want is, is the stab, is, is the joy, to be surprised by joy again. And interestingly, of course, Lewis made that his journey. That's his equivalent of this book, really. Because then when he became a Christian, he found joy in all sorts of places. But it was now joy as a byproduct of what he was learning. So we have justice, love, spirituality, beauty. And then after the next bit of Johannine material, I move on to where are we now? To freedom. And of course, you in America, you you live on freedom. You believe in freedom. You have a Statue of Liberty, which I one of the first things I ever saw in America. I sailed to New York in uh, February 1968 um, from sailed across from Liverpool. I was going to spend six months in North America before going back to start as an undergrad in Oxford. There was the Statue of Liberty. And I photographed it as we got closer and closer to it on the boat. And I remember thinking, wow, this is the land of the free. Well, yes, but. And you will know, and I know, and we all know that freedom is more elusive than we imagine. It's certainly elusive uh, politically that there are many people in North America who don't feel free and many people in other parts of the world who don't feel free because they feel Uncle Sam breathing down their necks, rightly or wrongly. That's a perception. But likewise, this happens within our personal lives because freedom is kind of odd. Does it mean that I'm a random being who just bounces around like a subatomic particle so that uh, I don't have any causation in my life, that I just act without any motivations at all? Of course not. We none of us feel like that. We we feel that we are making actual choices. And when I choose to pick this book off the shelf, it means that I can't simultaneously pull that book off the shelf. So I'm making choices 
And if the determinist comes along and says, that's because your brain is hardwired to do that, and your freedom is just actually, actually an illusion, then I want to say, no, sorry, I have the freedom to pick that one or that one. And that philosophical debate can go on and on and has done. But what is genuine freedom? Is it just feeling easy in your harness, as one poet said, or is it a different sort of thing where I'm enabled to become the person that I was truly meant to be? Huh, meant to be? Who says? And how do you know? Well, there's the problem, the puzzle. So that's the puzzle of freedom. And of course, in John, we find Jesus saying glorious things like, if the sun makes you free, you will be really free. And that gets him a hot reaction from his listeners. But then moving rapidly on truth. Well, as we all know now, truth is at stake in the modern and the postmodern world. But we have this problem, as Bernard Williams, the great philosopher, said in his last book, Truth and Truthfulness. We in today's world want more and more truth because we want to know what happened last week, which has caused this lawsuit, or we want to know what happened when some diplomat said something on the telephone, which has caused a, a, a fuss in another country. But the way we get at that is by trying to have more and more evidence to fill filing cabinets with the, the record of who signed this piece of paper, who did that. And as we reach out for truth, it seems to elude our grasp because everybody's truth is somebody's truth, isn't it? Well, that's what some people have said, that you only say that because it's serving your interests. Well, wait a minute. Does that mean I'm not telling you objective truth? No, of course not, because you're just a subject. So, et cetera, et cetera. And whether it's in personal relations, international relations or with the media and the press, these arguments go back and back. And if as Christians, we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life, then we have a storm of protest coming back at us. How can you say that Jesus is the truth? What about all the other great teachers? And so on and so forth. So the longing for truth is a signpost which we all, all humans, know it's pointing in the right direction, but it too is broken. And then power. Well, power for some people is just a dirty word these days. Um, Lord Acton famously said 150 years ago, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, we can no doubt all fill in the blanks with political leaders and societal leaders, tragically, maybe church leaders who exemplify that problem. But the problem of power is that you can't do without it. As we've learned by watching what happened in Iraq after we toppled Saddam Hussein, tyranny may be awful, but anarchy is, if anything, even worse. So we need power. People need to be in control of society because if they're not, the bullies and the bad guys and the unscrupulous always win. But if by giving somebody power, whether it's just as the treasurer of the golf club or the prime minister or president of some country, if you give them then a standing temptation to abuse that power, which has happened again and again and again. Does that mean that power is, after all, a dirty word? Or was there really something going on there? And it's a short step from there to talking about the kingdom of God, which is, of course, where we come into with the Gospels. So there are the seven signposts. That's why I've done with them what I've done. And in the second half, I want to talk a bit, dangerously perhaps, about the way in which John's Gospel picks up those themes 
and helps us to move them forwards and hear them not just as signposts, but as vocations. First of all, good morning to everybody here uh, in the U.S. And I want to say a good evening to you, Dr. Wright. Uh, once Hi. again, it's thoroughly great to have the opportunity to be with you. Will you allow this American to say something about your presentation before <laughs> I get to ask my question? Of course, of course. Your, uh, as I listened to your presentation, and because I uh, worked in the UK for some time while I was an executive at Nike, I was completely gobsmacked <laughs> by what you had to say. Uh, your present, <laughs> your presentation, both in, in how you presented and the content of it, um, really, um, almost sounds classical. And I really appreciate that very much. Thank you. Thank the you. Heart, my heart, the heart of my question is that one of the struggles that we have here and literally around the world is the ability to bring the millennial generation into a conversation and relationship with God. And what I found, and I think many have found, is that justice is one of those ways to bring them in. Would you mind giving us, um, because again, you're talking to a lot of people that may not be millennials here. Um, how would you position a conversation or at least a start of a conversation with a millennial recognize the, the fact that they are passionate about justice, but skeptical about God? And how do you bring yeah. them together? Yeah. Th that's a great question. I, I should say most of the millennials that I know best are members of my own family <laughs> because I used to be in student pastoral ministry um, 20 or 30 years ago, but uh, I haven't actually done that full on um, in recent years. So I've been working with PhD students, mostly in St. Andrews the last 10 years, and they are a very special cohort who don't fit the model of the ordinary millennials. But I, I mean, I, I know enough about what I think your question is about to say that uh, within that millennial world where there is considerable skepticism about the church and about religion and so on, there is nevertheless all the more a hunger to see the world put right. And that comes out in being passionate about climate change. It comes out in people being passionate about um, the, 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 the racial tensions in our world and the whole Black Lives Matter movement and so on. And it comes out in all sorts of political issues, social issues, ecological issues, which people really get far more worked up about than my generation ever did when we were teenagers. And, and remember, I, I was the, the, the 60s generation when we had protest songs and, and Vietnam War and, and all that stuff going on. But I see real passion for justice in depth and in detail. And it seems to me all that is right and good and true. But then um, I think one of the points that has to be made is that this is not new. They are not the first generation to yearn for some kind of putting right in the world at every level. And that tragically, when we look at the movements that have tried to do that stuff before, go back 200 years to the great revolutions or mid 19th century to some of the revolutions then, or the early 20th century with the Russian revolution, these were all people who really wanted to put the world right and reckoned they had to seize power and do it. As you look at what then happened, again and again, they made matters worse. Um, 
And, and so then we face the millennials with the problem. So what are you going to do? And you can either collapse back into cynicism and say, well, there's nothing we can do. And tragically, some Christians would say there's nothing we can do till Jesus comes again. And the answer is, sorry, Jesus has already come and he's died and been raised and he sent his spirit. Now get on with it. But that's that's for my, my second half. But so I would want to resonate as much as possible with their passion for putting the world right and then to explore with them the ways in which people have tried to do that in the past and why that has come crashing down on its face. And then perhaps talk about readings of the gospel story, which show that in that brokenness is where we meet the true God who the churches have often hushed up, who actually came and shared that brokenness himself. And that's the argument of this book. Thank you so much. Yeah. You know, it's, um, you know, as we talk about that issue of, of justice, you know, it's, it's interesting, even as you go through your, your broken signposts, as we, as we talk about one of the other ones, love, it seems like this generation has attempted to uh, bring justice or the attempt to find justice in our culture uh, outside of the context uh, doing it in its primary purpose, which is love. You know, Old Testament, you looked at the very point of what we were seeing throughout Old Testament, widows, orphans, homeless, poor, which would be for the primary areas where justice was to be measured and where we were to actually go to people unlike us and love them and serve them. It seems like we have a generation today that wants justice, but not at the expense of loving our enemies and loving those that are like us. And so unpack that a little bit too, of just saying, okay, here's this justice issue, but it can't be separated from this idea of loving those who are different than you and actually serving people that are in need or those that are oppressed. Yes. Um, I, I think an awful lot of young people in principle resonate with that. Um, it's hard to say and obviously hard to generalize because, you know, if I went out on the street and found some Oxford students and quizzed them about it, I'd probably get several different opinions. Um, but, but I think there is, um, a yearning to do the right thing for the wider world. And the more people realize they've grown up in a multicultural society, there are some, of course, who resent that and uh, are nervous about losing their own identity for whatever reason. And so are clinging to subsections of humanity as their natural identity partners, whether it's uh, the, the radical white supremacists or or, or whether it's um, you know what whatever. We construct different identities so that we feel safe there but i think there are lots and lots of of people around the world as far as i can tell who actually if faced with psalm 72 which says do justice for or that the king will do justice for the orphan and the widow and so on the people say yeah absolutely um i can think of somebody down the street or somebody i saw on the television news the other day we need to care for these people and and, and not to wash our hands of them so i think that is an imperative that many would resonate with I'm not sure I picked up all of your question, but the, the, the microphone went funny in the middle. But, but was that am, am I on target there? Yeah, I, I think that that's that's really, really clear. Thank you so much. Uh, I was going to take one out of the chat. Is there? Yeah. Is there one in the um, chat? Uh, there, there isn't. Uh, maybe oh, okay. there, there's a couple that are coming up. Okay. Hey, hey, let's let's talk just, you know, as you go through, there's so much meat in every one of those. We could have a conversation for an hour on any one of your seven. I was I was really struck as you dove into the whole freedom uh, signpost and 
obviously, you know, that he, the sun sets free, free indeed. Um, we as leaders and on this call are many pastors. We're really good at believing in freedom and preaching freedom. Yet oftentimes we're very stuck ourselves. And, and, you know, as we think about that concept of freedom, talk personally, uh, Tom, just about how you, with all of your pressures, challenges, insecurities, how you have been able to live a life of freedom in the midst of all the challenges with your humanity. In, insofar as I have, I mean, uh, <laughs> b- b- because, because if, if I said, what would it look like to be totally free? If I was told at seven o'clock in the morning, you are completely free today, forget your diary, don't do anything with all of that, then what would I most want to do? And I would probably want to go for a walk in the country or I probably want to go and play with my grandchildren or I would probably want to curl up with a book that I've been meaning to read for weeks and haven't had a chance to or perhaps some combination of all of the above. Now, so freedom would be freedom from constraints, but also freedom for doing some of those things that I really, really enjoy. And there would undoubtedly be music in there as well. And I have been fortunate in so many ways and richly blessed in that things like that have filled my life in all sorts of ways. But I have routinely also chosen to do things which have, as it were, trapped me where I've foolishly said, yes, I will do this. And then later think, uh, why on earth did I say yes to that? Because that has restricted me in these ways and those ways. And of course, not to talk too personally, but sin does this all the time. When I choose to go my own way rather than listening to the voice of the spirit and to the wisdom of, of scripture, etc., then I find myself in a blind alley in a very unfree position. And like the prodigal son, have to come back and say, sorry, and please can we start again? Um, and it's, it's a constant, a constant struggle. But I think, um, then, Part of the challenge of freedom in the New Testament, and we'll come on to this perhaps in the second half, is about uh, what Jesus said to Peter when he forgives him for um, betraying him, for, for, for denying him, but then commissions him to do work in which Jesus knows Peter will find the freedom which comes from being truly the person you are created to be. And then he says... When you're older, somebody will dress you up and take you where you don't want to go. Follow me. Peter won't want to go and be crucified upside down, which is what tradition says happened to him. But that will be following Jesus. And following Jesus is the ultimate definition of freedom. Well, isn't that interesting? Doesn't look like what we might have imagined. And so again and again, the vocation of freedom, and I say this to myself, is not about simply saying, what would I most like to do today? But ultimately saying, what does God want to do, which will en route enhance my genuine humanness? And and, and I'll only find that out by following and coming and seeing, which is the challenge of the gospel. Dr. Wright, I, I apologize. When I first began, I forgot that Mark's name was up there on the front. My name is Matt. Sure. Uh, <laughs> and I'm Mark Estes. Somebody might have considered that there the are two haircut, of us. Right. right, there you go. Um, one of the things that you talked about, there are two questions in the chat that I'm going to try, it, and it may be the next time around, to try to pull that together. Okay. Um, the question I had was the question about power okay. and the importance of what you discussed 
regarding the use and potentially, obviously, the abuse of power. And one of the things that I have felt is very important is the ability to understand that you may have power, but you restrain yourself from having to use it. Again, as you speak and teach, how do you help people understand the importance using the example of Jesus, whether in the Joannine Gospels or throughout, the example of Jesus who had power, but truly was very restrained in how he used it, and particularly about the crucifixion. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. No, I think, the, the, and this is really important for a biblical political theology and uh, backstory here, ever since the 18th century with the Western separation of church and state. And I know we in Britain have an established church, but we have still basically separated the two um, because that's what the Enlightenment did for, for, for whether it's Germany or France or Britain or America or whatever. Um, ever since then, we have struggled with the idea that maybe there is a political theology in the New Testament, but there sure is, because the New Testament includes all those bits which affirm that God, the, 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 we're monotheists, that God, the creator of the world, wants his world to be run wisely by wise human beings. And this is quite clear in, say, the book of Proverbs. It's not accidental that the book of Proverbs is attributed to Solomon or that the much later Jewish book called The Wisdom of Solomon, again, is is a Solomonic book and contains at its heart wise advice for rulers as to how to go about ruling wisely. And here's the trick. God does not want anarchy. God is not honored by anarchy because, as I said before, if there is no power being exercised anywhere, the bad guys and the bullies will say, wow, this is great. We can clean up. There's some weak people down the road. We can go and beat their door down and rob them and then we'll get rich or words to that effect. And likewise, all down through human life and society, um, uh, the strong people in a family can beat up and, and prey on the weak people and so on. So somehow power matters, but power has to be restrained and held within a framework. And it seems to me the, the, the classic example of this is when Jesus says to Pontius Pilate, you could have no power over me unless it was given you from above. In other words, Jesus says to Pilate that God the Father has given him, Pilate, power over him, Jesus. And Jesus respects that, which is one of the most extraordinary sentences in the New Testament. Then he says, therefore, the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. In other words, when God gives power to a human being, whether it's to be the parent of a family or whether it's to run a country, God will hold you accountable. God is not mocked. God is not fooled. And when people abuse power, God will hold them to account. And somehow the Christian church has always struggled to articulate this. It has often in the past articulated it. But for the last 200 years, we've kind of forgotten that. It said, no, being a Christian is saying your prayers and go to heaven when you die and we'll leave the power stuff to the politicians. And then we wonder why they mess it up. And somehow there is a vocation to use power wisely, which is a biblical vocation. But that's why, and again, maybe I'll get back to this in the second half or I'll say it now, in John's gospel, chapter 16, my goodness, when the spirit comes, the spirit will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. But excuse me, 
How does the spirit do that? Jesus gives us the spirit and says, as the father sent me, so I send you. In other words, watch how Jesus held the Pharisees to account, held the rich to account, held Pontius Pilate to account. That's what the spirit is to enable us to do in our turn. And if that isn't a vocation to keep us rather anxious for a little while, then I don't know what is. <laughs> so I, we will come back to the questions in the chat. So the next time oh. around, make sure to okay to, to get those together. This has been great. Yeah, it's been enjoyed. It's wonderful. Why don't we uh, Why don't we just go ahead and jump into session two, and uh, okay. we'll just turn it back over to you. Thanks so much for listening to part one of Broken Signposts with Dr. N.T. Wright. Special thanks to Pastor Mark Estes and Reverend Dr. J.W. Matt Hennessy for their great questions there at the end. Like Pastor Mark said, it is now time for part two, which is available right now on the Together PDX podcast.